Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zweiback. Thanks for joining me. Today I sit down with Dr. Saba Sumach. She's the Assistant Director of Interreligious and Intercommunity Affairs at the AJC here in Los Angeles. She's a lecturer at UCLA. She's an expert in the Persian Jewish community of LA. I'm going to be teaching a class with her this fall, reflecting on 40 years since the revolution in Iran. Stay tuned. Okay, so we are here with Saba Sumech on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Saba, Thank for being here. Thank you so much here. for having me. It's such an honor. It's it's my honor. And what's very exciting to me is uh, we're going to be teaching this class this year called mm-hmm. 40 Years After. Yes. And I've already had the opportunity to teach with you once before. And I've also had the opportunity to just learn from you. And your story is so interesting. You came to the United States when you were two years old? Maybe? I came in 1978, right before the revolution. My my family saw the writing on the wall. Um, they knew that they were always going to come to America, and I already had family members that were here. So they were going to come, but it was an expedited leaving because they knew they had to, uh, they knew they had to leave, unfortunately. Did they ever talk to you about, you know, when you say they saw the writing on the wall, like what what did they see? You know, this is a great question, and they didn't talk to me about it. And teaching my students, and I have a lot of Iranian Jewish students at UCLA in my courses, and I talked to them about it. Our parents didn't really discuss what happened. I think a lot of it is just that you escape, you start all over again, you want to focus on the positive, you're kind of in survival mode, and then you also don't want to talk about the bad times, you just want to stay on the positive. So very few students told me like their parents or their grandparents discussed it with them. My parents really didn't discuss it with us. My grandparents didn't. It wasn't until I started working on my PhD dissertation, which ended up being my book from the Shahs to Los Angeles, where I interviewed 120 women that I actually sat down, 120 Iranian Jewish women between the ages of 90 and 18, what I call grandmother, mother, daughter generation. And it wasn't until I sat down with the grandmother and the mother generation, those under Reza Pahlavi, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi towards the end, um, and then the ones who escaped the revolution, that I really began to hear about these, some of them very traumatic um, ways that they escaped, others less traumatic like my family, but no one really talked about it until you really start pushing them. And you know, Yoshi, you know what was so sad is because it was so traumatic, I can't tell you how many people actually... I mean, at that point, I was recording. You know, you had your old school tape recorder. It was in the early, mid-2000s. You know, no one had an iPhone. Um, I would have to stop my recording and hug them because they would start hysterically crying and breaking down. It's not like they went to therapy to deal with this. It's not like they talked to anyone about it. They really held it in, I think, just to be stoic, just to, again, survival mode. Well, it must have been very cathartic 
for them to just tell their story to you. I think it was. And I think it was also on my end a little, oh my gosh, I opened up this floodgate and I'm not a therapist. I don't, I'm not, am I doing this okay? Your PhD is not in psychology. No, my PhD is in the history of religions. And so there was a part of me that felt very responsible because once that tape recorder was off and I was out of their home, now what's going to happen to them? Are they emotionally okay? And so I would turn off my tape recorder. I go over and I just give them hugs. And a lot of time they would just cry in my arms and they say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I haven't had to think about this in so long, but you know, I don't think the Persian culture in general less now, but in general it's not a culture that goes to go to therapy, go talk it out. You PTSD, you dealt with this. No one dealt with that. And you know, it's, what's interesting. One thing I do notice, uh, I'm now in my eighth year at Stephen Wise temple. And so I've had an opportunity to celebrate bar and bat mitzvahs and weddings with Persian Jewish members of the community. I've been at funerals. Um, and what I see though, is that there is an incredible openness to crying, to hugging, all sorts of emoting. And yet when it comes to this kind of revealing, it sounds like there's a little reluctance. How does that do those two things go together? It, it doesn't, but I again, I don't think anyone made a conscious decision not to talk about it. I think people were just in survival mode. And then survival mode leads to, okay, now we're comfortable. And from comfortable, it leads to, let's talk about the positive or I'll tell... I mean, this is, again, when I would ask people to tell me about their stories, they would tell me all these really amazing things about Iran. And as a historian who studied Iran, I knew it wasn't that amazing or I knew that it wasn't that amazing for the Jews. There was a lot amazing, of... Amazing, good, like they were... Amazing, good. It was right. like my life was like a dream. I was floating on a cloud. Life was great. I didn't deal with anti-Semitism. But, and you, but you knew that some of that, I knew that just was, wasn't exactly. true. So right. then you push and you push and it's like, okay, well, we were, you know, rocks were being thrown at us. They were calling us dirty Jews and, you know, I think people just they for being positive maybe they don't want to talk about the old country people romanticize their past histories we do it all the time and they only i think they really just want to focus on the positive and not on the negative look some people really went straight to the negative but i think for the most part also it's just you know it was persia it was in iran it was this beautiful time under the shah where life was good for the jews i mean look at the fact that you had 750, 850,000 Jews from the Arab world kicked out and they went, most a lot went to Israel, etc. Iranian Jews didn't. We have family members that did, but they did because they were Zionist. If, if they did, it was either because they were really, you know, believing in the Zionist cause and they wanted to go in 48 or because they were coming from a lower socioeconomic status. They were still living in the Mahalas, the Jewish ghettos, even though they didn't for the most part exist, but they still existed. Um, but for the most part, Iranian Jews were doing fairly well. They became the nouveau riche under the Pahlavi regime, and life was really good for them. Of course, if you're living in Tehran, the the ones living in smaller cities, who they were still a very you know a, a minority, even though the Jews were always a minority, they dealt with a lot more t- uh, anti-Semitism than the ones dealing in the capital did. Right. Well, I wonder you know how common that is in the immigrant experience because it's so challenging to be an immigrant that you start to romanticize the past. And even though, yeah, life was good and there were all these positive things, you forget about some of the negatives. You, you're you an immigrant, but you came at such an early age. Like, To what extent do you see yourself as an immigrant? It's a great question. I don't... Uh, I'm very cautious of conscious of the fact that I am an immigrant, but I don't have the same immigrant experience as someone who is Latina 
as a, you know, I, I see myself as being a brown Jew. And it's funny because I never even had to put it in that context until everything going on in the far left and intersectionality and it's brown, black versus white and Jews don't belong in either, et cetera. But I, you know, I, I'm very, I recognize that I don't, I had it a lot easier than a lot of immigrants who are here, a lot of immigrant women, but in the way that I do see myself as as an immigrant woman is that I'm a first generation and it's hard whether you are from Mexico, from Pakistan or from Iran, when your parents did not grow up in America, when things like going away to college and thank God my parents were so amazing about that for both me and my sister, but going away to college is so foreign. You you left LA, which was a really big deal, right? It was a big deal. I left LA at 18 and I didn't come back until I was 28. And I came back because I got this wonderful position as a visiting professor at Loyola Marymount University. Um, but I, yeah, I left and I didn't come back and my summers were spent doing things that a lot of Persian Jewish girls didn't do. I lived in India. I backpacked through Africa. I backpacked through Southeast Asia, through South America. Um, people are doing that a lot more now. I lived in, uh, Israel. I went to an egalitarian yeshiva for a summer, Pardes in Jerusalem. And And was that in particular because you're a woman? Was that part of it? Or would that be true of a young Persian man at the same time? Where it's just like you just don't leave home. You just don't leave home. You're ha- you're content. You know, and I, again, I don't want to talk about the Iranian Jewish communities if everyone's the same. But women were definitely not encouraged to leave. The men had the opportunity. And they didn't. A lot of them did not take it. At least the men that I grew up with and went to high school with. They didn't. I think a lot of people didn't have. I just had an intense sense of wonderlust, and it was a wonderlust to also see a world very different than the socioeconomic background that I grew up in. And I was also a religious studies major. I I wanted to go. You have live, to go to India. I have to go to India. I have to go live in Israel. I need to go see Theravada Buddhist monasteries, and I wanted to, I I wanted to do all of that. I grew up wanting to join the Peace Corps, so this was you know, an easier way of just being able to experience life. And it made me appreciate Los Angeles. I would not want to be back here if I stayed here all of my life. And I tell my students that all the time. Nothing will change here. Everything will be the same. Go experience the world, and it will only make you appreciate everything that you have here. When when you were researching your book and you had those interviews with, you know, three generations, I'm sure there were things that you heard or learned that you expected. And then there were things that you heard and learned that blew your mind and you thought, I can't believe this. What are some of the things on both sides? What are some things that, let me start with things that really surprised you about what you were hearing, whether it's from the grandmother's generation, the mother's generation, or your own generation. Uh, What were some of the things that surprised you, shocked you? Backbending work our grandmothers did to so i have I, my whole thesis was about the domestication of religion that these women were left out of the synagogue world and so thus the home life became the place that they were able to you know show their judaism because i mean they didn't they didn't know how to read or write hebrew they weren't going to synagogue they had nine, 10 children. It was, you know, the domestic sphere is really where they were able to show their religiosity and um and just the backbending work that they were involved in and just 
making the Shabbat dinners and creating a world, a Jewish world, a Jewish world that's not based on halakha. They didn't know any of that, which was really just the oral tradition passed down from grandmother to mother to daughter. But really, these women would get up at five in the morning and do everything. And, you know, we didn't have kosher for Passover, this or that. We went through every single piece of rice to make sure that there wasn't anything unkosher during Passover. And then we painted the house twice and then we had to redo this. We had to redo that. Okay. And I would say, well, there's no halachic thing that says you have to paint the house. You have to, you know, re- were these traditions that they these had were traditions received? From, and I think right. a lot of this also came, and I write about this in my book. A lot of it also came from the fact that Passover takes place at the same time as Noruz, the Jewish, sorry, the Persian new year. It always falls Which around the same time. The spring. spring. Right. And, you know, Persian Jews were considered to be najes, religiously impure. And, of course, beyond that's just an insult. And a lot of the women would say to me, you know, we went to the nth degree to make sure our houses were perfect and clean to show our Muslim neighbors, which weren't really their neighbors because they were living in the Mahalle, the Jewish ghetto, you think we're impure. Look at how clean our houses are. Look at what we, you know, what we do for our Passover and... And so, you know, that just, I knew the self-sacrificing, but just to see, just to hear it in that, on that level. And then another thing that I I thought I knew and I saw, but just really the pain me was um, the emotional scars of getting married at such a young age and leaving your home and having to move in with your husband and his family. And um, I mean, people told me these horrific stories about their mother, mother mother-in-law and the sisters and you know, just being treated that way. And when you're sitting there going, oh my God, that must have been so horrible for you. It must have been so horrible for you. And on top of that, you're 13 or you're 14 years old. You are looking at a seventh or eighth grader being treated this way. And not only, you're not a woman being able to process it, all of this. And was it typical for the husband to be 10, 12 years older? It was, it yeah. was. And, you know, you move in with your husband's family. And, uh, you know, you just, I can't even imagine being married at that age, let alone then having to leave your parents who you've never left before in your life. But you hear these stories about Iran under the Shah and how cosmopolitan it was. And there's pictures of women, you know, and you think about women today in Iran in public spaces. I know in private spaces it can be very different. Uh, But, you know, very, it looked like it was the, the Paris of the Middle East. And then at the same time, you have 13-year-olds being married off. Well, okay. So, so how are those I, things I, I happening I should talk about the, the generations. Time? That was the grandmother's generation. My, by the time okay. you got to the mother's generation, they weren't 13. And Mohammed Reza Pahlavi made sure they were not allowed to be 13. Okay. So that was one of the many changes that he brought about. I think the youngest age, the age range was 16 that you could get then at that point get married. So people got married 18, 20, 22, 23 um, and a lot of times, if you couldn't afford it, you were still moving in with your mother-in-law, with your in-laws, et cetera. So things did change. But the difference was, in a time where religion was taken out of the Iranian public sphere, in a time where Jews came out of the Mahalas and living next to Muslims in northern Tehran, which was you know the more affluent areas, one way that women were able to maintain their Judaism when they weren't really practicing, when they weren't really keeping kosher, was this concept of what we have in Farsi, of Najib, of being, you know, sexually pure. And the idea of, okay, the secular Muslim... And this isn't just Jewish, this is No, it's, this it's, is a, it's broad, a concept that is, right. but it was what my, what my interviewees really talked about was this concept of being Najib. I wrote my PhD dissertation slash book on this idea of domestication of religion. I didn't think I was going to touch upon 
sexuality within the Iranian Jewish world. But it's a theme that constantly came up. And I found myself pivoting towards this because women kept saying to me, my mother's generation, under the time of Mohammad Reza Pahlavi and freedom, et cetera, you know, we were so free. So the one thing that made sure that the community kept us within our place and said, you know, you are different than these other girls is with this concept of virginity and you still have to be Najib and you still have to be a quote unquote good Jewish girl. And when I interviewed my 18 year old, 18 to 25 year old, um, young Iranian Jewish women, and it's the same thing. I went to Brentwood. I went to Harvard Westlake. I went to Beverly. And my parents kept saying to me, even though you're friends with all these American girls, you have American friends where we're living in American culture, remember, you still have to maintain your sexual purity, et cetera, as a Persian Jewish girl. And it was never because of religious reasons. I had a couple of Orthodox, modern Orthodox young women say to me because of religious reasons, but it was never about because the Torah says it or the Halakha says it. It's because of reputation, of purity, of what man is going to want to marry a woman. And again, this has changed my dissertation. And by the time I finished writing, it was, I think, 2006. And so a lot has changed in that process. And and was some of this an attempt to show Muslim Iranians that that you were as clean and as pure as you wanted them to perceive you as? Well, it's interesting. By the time you had the Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, um, this concept of Najib, by the Pahlavi regime, they got rid of this idea of Najib and being religiously impure. Khomeini brought it back, but it was gone from the 1920s. So the term means religious impurity. It's not necessarily related to sexual No, sorry. So it's so na- sorry. Najib is sexual modesty. I'm sorry. Najib is sexual modesty. Um, Najasat, and I know for someone who doesn't, these words mean My it. My Farsi is getting pretty I know. Good. So Najas yeah. means religiously impure. Got it. Okay. Um, Najib okay. means sex. You know, so they're related, but not, not equivalent. They're terms. not equivalent. And you could right. say a, a guy is Najib, meaning like, you know, he's innocent. He doesn't really know what's going on. Right. But when you're saying it regarding a woman, a a girl or women, it's really meaning her sexual purity and right. she's unknowing, quote unquote, of the world, etc. And, you know, it's, it was, it's what's really interesting. And this is what's so funny was a lot of the Jewish women said to me, you know, we had to be Najib where the Muslim women were, again, we're talking about secular Muslim women were able to go dancing and you, we couldn't even dance the way that they were dancing. You know, they could be more sexually free. And then when I interviewed secular Muslim women from that same generation, they were like, what are they talking about? Why would they assume that we were off like having this amazing sexual life while they were virgins? We were, we had the same rules. And so everyone was putting on this, like this quasi sexuality on each other when no one was really doing it. I mean, maybe some people were, you know, but, um, most women at that time still had to be Najib, even if you're looking at the TV and all the posters and everything was more of a sexualization, a European sexualization, what Khomeini later on referred to as West toxification, but everyone was still practicing sexual purity. And I also saw it with my UCLA students because my classes sometimes ended up being like therapy sessions. And I remember a couple of years ago, we did have a large group of secular Muslim girls in the class and they, you know, they just went at it with the Iranian Jewish girls where they were, and the boys saying, you know, you want to date us, but you want to marry them, meaning the Iranian Jewish girls. You think that we're going to sleep with you and they're going to be the virgins. And I was just sitting there watching all this going, oh my gosh. This and this is, is 2000 and 2000. I don't 10, remember. 2000. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, and so now from the time that you did this research, 12 years, 13 years have passed. How have things continued to evolve? Because one of the overarching questions I always have about any community like the 
you know, Iranian Los Angeles Jewish community is how long can they maintain their communal identity when we know the power of assimilation in the United States is, you know, by the third generation, you're not going to know any Farsi, you're going to cease to have a distinct Persian Jewish identity, and you'll either become, we hope, as Jewish educators, you know, you'll see yourself as a Jew, but some of the ethnic identity might might just slip away. So now, you know, we're in the third generation, almost to the fourth generation. What changes are you seeing now? I am, if anything, I see the opposite. I am not seeing people lose their identity. I, I see them still maintaining their identity, still being a very insular culture for better or for worse. Um, I see my students speak Farsi a lot better than I do, and they were born and raised here where I was born there. I see them really just wanting to for marry mostly Iranian Jews. And again, I don't want to talk about all of them as, you know, it's, it's a one group, but... Sure, we're talking in broad but, you know, and, and But from what I'm saying, and the difference is I'm now their professor, so I'm not sitting down with them in a private conversation asking them about sexuality or anything like that, changing their name for a book. So I, I'm not getting the full details because as their professor, I'm not asking them the full details, but they still have a lot of Persian pride. They still, a lot of Persian Jewish pride, I should say, and they are not losing their Iranian Jewish language, culture, tradition, heritage. If anything, I think they have retained it more than my generation has. That's interesting. You know, you mentioned Persian pride and uh, just recently at the synagogue, we had JQ International come and spend some time with us thinking about inclusion and their focus is on LGBTQ plus inclusion in the Jewish community. And it's a Los Angeles based organization. One of the things that makes them quite unique is that they have this program called Persian pride, which I think it's the only uh, thing of its kind in the world. Um, uh, Tell me a little bit about that experience. So these are um, LGBTQ plus Persian Jews who are finding ways to come out to their families, finding ways to live full lives and deal with some of the challenges that come with coming, emerging from a a more traditional community and being able to embrace your identity. So, you know, I, I have to say at full disclosure, I'm an ally of the communities. I'm not, I don't think I'm the right person to ask. And, you know, you should have Arya here to talk to him. And I think he's just so brilliant. I bring him to speak to my students. Arya is, uh, works for Jewish Queer, and he's just a great advocate. And so, I, you know, I could, again, just talk as a professor who brings Arya into my class to talk about LGBTQ, the LGBTQ community advocacy, um, JQ, and him as his own personal story, it is powerful and it is amazing. And I really, really commend the Iranian Jewish community. And again, it's not everyone. And there's people who could say, this is not my experience, but from seeing it from my perspective and seeing my students who are so open and loving and kind to their friends and their cousins who have come out within the Iranian Jewish community, I really don't think I could see from the parents' generation. And I understand that because it's a very new thing for them in terms of dealing with the reality of it. But for the students' generation, it's not, I I don't even think they even deal with it in that context. And the love and the respect. That's a tremendous change. It's a huge change. You know, 20 years, 15 years, you know, based on, and again, I'm not asking you to speak for the Persian Jewish community of Los Angeles, but as someone who studies the right. community, when did you? When did we start to see a change or a tipping point from a time when it was important to stay in the closet because you don't want to damage your sister's um, 
you know, a chance of getting married if people thought, you know, maybe say something about that. Cause I remember once in one of the times that we, we spoke, you talked about that, that there, there was a time and maybe still in some families, there still is a time where it's important to stay closeted. So you don't, um, you know, in any way impede a siblings opportunity to get married to today where you have Persian pride. Right. So, so the Middle Eastern culture, Persian Jews, just like most cultures in the Middle East and a lot of just ethnic cultures, it's all about family, family name, family reputation. So you, you know, the idea is that you don't there, it's not this and American ideology of, and, you know, almost like this Protestant ethic of you, you know, you reap what you sow, you work hard, you live for yourself, et cetera. It is, you are brought up with your parents saying, I live for you and you live for us. You know, we are a team. So what you do not only affects you, but it affects us. It affects our family name. It affects your siblings. It affects your cousins. And, you know, you were brought up knowing that. And it's it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. You're not brought up with this, okay, I'm just doing this on my own. It's, oh my gosh, my poor mom, my poor dad. Oh my God, is my sister not going to get married? And and not that everyone believes in this or everyone cares, but it has traditionally been that way. So I would assume, and I know that a lot of people stay closeted for that reason because they don't want to break their parents' heart. They don't want to be something shameful. It is. It for was considered family. something right. shameful. And again, for some families, it still is, and a lot of families, it's not. And it's you know, and I really commend the families that you know don't see it in this way. And I I, I don't want to judge the families who do because it's not an easy thing. Um, just because everything in the society that they've grown up in, in a traditional Middle Eastern Jewish society has told you that this is not, you know, there's very traditional gender roles that you play. And, um, but what I have seen is that it's very different with the younger students because they are growing up with modern family. They're growing up with things that, you know, the other generation never did that they didn't see. And no one really thinks twice about it anymore. And if they do, it's something that you deal with, but then it's so it's, it's everywhere at this point. And so I think that they're, you know, I really, I always turn to my students and I say, I love you guys. You are so good at just really protecting each other. And even if a student comes out to their friends and not yet to the family, they will keep that secret until they're ready for them to come out and show that support. And it's, that's, that's a really interesting um, counter in some ways to what you said a little bit earlier, which is just, to me, a fascinating thing about humanity is just how inconsistent we can be in lots of beautiful ways. So you have, on the one hand, this trend of, I'm going to hold on to the past, I'm going to keep speaking Farsi, I'm going to hold on to these, I'm going to be more Persian than Saba's generation. And then at the same time, it's like, but wait, you know, LGBTQ inclusion, like, of course, I don't even have to think twice about that, which is a very Western, very American value. And obviously, in today's Middle East, other than Tel Aviv, um, and maybe a few other pockets, um, although maybe not, maybe just in Tel Aviv, it might be the only place in the Middle East where you can really have that pride. And then you have this Los Angeles phenomenon. So I I think that's a beautiful thing, because it's, it's, um, to me, it's a very reformed Jewish uh, impulse as well. It's like, there are aspects of tradition that we do want to hold on to because it gives it roots us. There's something eternal about right. it, and at the same time, we're open to modernity. We're open to change, um, and and to have those things not be mutually exclusive. I think is really interesting. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's it's adapting and it's survival. And I think these these students know that they will have children, and there's a high likely you know chance that their children when someone's going to be 
you know, from within the LGBTQ community and they can't, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to kick them out in a culture that's all about family. Some families have, but what I have seen in my experience, and again, I, I think it's because I am in the reform conservative world. And so I am around people who, you know, are seeing it in their synagogues or seeing it in their schools or see it's, it's been really beautiful to see. And I have to tell you, you know, we have an evaluation and I ask my students, I bring in all these amazing speakers. They love all of them. And they always say they are so moved by Arya and, and JQ and what, you know, what they're doing. And just, it's really, it's really lovely to see in that way that it is such a progressive community, at least my students. And I'm not just talking about the ones who are coming from reform conservative. I have a lot who are within the Orthodox world and they don't even think twice about it. So one of the amazing things about the Los Angeles Jewish community more broadly is that my, I've lived in New York and I've lived in Jerusalem and I've found that the community here there's a certain cohesion across denominations, which I think is really beautiful. Right. And a lot of talking to one another, which I think is really beautiful. Um, one thing that interests me is when you have a community transplanted against its will, by and large, the Jews of Iran didn't one day get up and say, you know, life's great here, Definitely but we think will. it'd be fun to yes. check out L.A. Yes. They left because they had to leave. Yes. Um, and there were some families who, who left early, either because they saw the writing on the wall or because they're, they're seekers, they're adventuresome. Right. And so there, right. there were families who came earlier. But most of the community, just like my community, we came, my family came from uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And those Jews left because they had no other choices. They left because they had to leave. Um, but what, what interests me is when you have a community that's transplanted from a Middle Eastern context where there was no reform or conservative Judaism, there was sort of traditional Judaism. Right. And, and I'm sure there, were, there was a certain amount of secularism that, that existed under the Shah because that was finally allowed. But for most Jews, there was just kind of one brand of Judaism right. and it was traditional Judaism. And then they are plopped down in a community like Los Angeles. And Stephen Wise is one of the few synagogues that really opened its doors yes. to the Iranian community. And all of a sudden they're in a reform synagogue and they're glad to be welcomed in to this big tent, but it's not a tent they've ever been in. All right. of a sudden it's like, whoa, this is not, this is not the Judaism we're used to. What, what are some things that you've seen or learned or experienced in that regard in terms of how Persian Jewish identity gets shaped now by liberal Jewish denominational approaches? Well, I think the LGBTQ aspect of it, definitely. I think women having leadership roles, you know, my parents didn't know because they grew up under such a secular monarchy. They didn't know Hebrew. They didn't know the prayers. I think it was so important for them to send my sister and to send me to a Jewish day school. And my dad with great pride at Shabbat would turn to us and say, say the prayers. I mean, they love that we, we were teaching them the prayers. Um, he would make us tape record the Shema and he would listen to it every morning so he could learn it by heart. And cause he didn't, he didn't have that opportunity. And, you know, when I interviewed a lot of my, the women for my book and the grandmother generation, and I said, you know, you go to a reform or a conservative synagogue, that's the, they say the sermon in English. You don't understand a word that they're saying. What is it about that? That makes you jump on the bus to get to this. And they say, I love seeing my granddaughter up there. 
Mm-hmm. I didn't have that opportunity. And they, I don't know if they would call themselves feminists. I don't know if they, I mean, I don't even think there's a word called egalitarian, a translation in Farsi. I'm sure there is, but I don't know it. But, you know, for them, it is all about their daughters, their granddaughters having the same opportunities that they didn't have and learning about Judaism. And then it's interesting. It's like learning about Judaism, but don't become too religious because you don't know if someone's going to marry you if you're too religious. Or, I mean, we're seeing Persian women now who are becoming cantors and rabbis. And I know that in the beginning, they, you know, people were freaking out over that because, you know, what Persian man's going to marry a woman who's going to be a cantor or a rabbi? And I spoke to a uh, one who is a very famous female Persian cantor. And she said, I met my husband because I was up on the pulpit singing and he heard my voice and he thought it was beautiful. And, you know, their daughter just had their, her bat mitzvah. So it just shows you that even she's, in a, our, she's a cantor at Stephen White's temple. Yeah. Tana? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. No, it's, um, it, and, and, uh, I just think it's a beautiful story. And one thing I've seen over the last, um, six or seven years of being here is that almost never do I see a family come up questioning whether their daughter should become bat mitzvah. Right. Whereas I think, uh, you know, a half a generation ago, you had families who enrolled their kids at Stephen Wise uh, Elementary because they wanted their kids at Wise School and they wanted them to have that experience, but they did consider themselves to be liberal Jews, reformed Jews, and the thought that their daughter would stand up in front of the community, put on a talit, and maybe even mm-hmm. wear a kippah and read from the Torah. Like that was that I was mean, a bridge it was it was a little just, too yeah, far. Absolutely. But now that's become the norm, and it's almost never that I have a, a family that that doesn't uh, embrace that. And the other thing that's been beautiful to see is it's common amongst our uh, Persian families the Thursday before their bar bat mitzvah to come to a tefillin right. ceremony that we do. And I'm seeing more young women, women who do, say, I want to put on tefillin, which, and, and dads and grandparents who are like, it's great. My child is embracing um, her Judaism. Yes. So I, I just think that's a, I mean, look, that's a beautiful thing. You could have it the other way where they're sitting and saying, I don't want to be a part of this. And so if they want to embrace it, you know, how can you not be supportive of it, especially when you're spending all this money for them to learn it? And not only that, but also this Zionism. And I think Iranian Jews have always had Zion. They've always had the Zionistic tendency, but for their kids to have this possibility to study and spend time in Israel and to live in Israel. And I had a lot of my um, Iranian Jewish students at UCLA who said, you know, I can't go away. I can't go backpacking through Europe. But if I want to go to Israel, my parents are okay with that. That's allowed. Right. That's allowed. And, you know, there, there's something there's I, I wish they could go back. They have that opportunity to go wherever they want to go. But just, you know, the significance of Israel. And I'll give you an, another example. Again, I remember it was 2009. And I was teaching my my course on Iran and Iranian Jews, and I had a lot of secular Muslim students in the class, lovely, lovely students, love them. And they said, Professor Sumach, do you mind if we take off and go to the federal building to show support for the Green Revolution? And, you know, because that was taking place at that time. And I said, absolutely, if you need to miss class, no problem at all, go. And then they turned around to the rest of the students, who a majority of them were Iranian Jews, and said, how come you're not coming with us? How come you're not going to show support for the Green Revolution? And the students were like, why would we go with you? And they, didn't, they couldn't articulate what I then later explained. I said, 
It's amazing that you guys are going. Please go. And as I'm saying, you're not going to get, you know, you have the excuse in class to go. I'm proud of you for going. But to expect a group of Iranian Jewish kids to go, I go, what you don't understand is that for Iranian Jews, we don't have the luxury that you do to go back and forth. Iran is a real country for you. It is where you are going every summer to visit your grandparents, to visit your cousins, to go have fun. We depend on you to tell us what this country is about because we have no idea anymore. We don't have this luxury. And I said, because, and they also said as I was teaching Iranian history, and for a lot of these Iranian Muslim students, they knew all of this. They were shocked that the Iranian Jewish kids didn't know any of this. Mm. And I said, you're shocked that, you know, these students don't know Iranian history. I said, but you have to understand because we came here, because we don't have the luxury of going back, because most of these students were placed in Jewish day schools or spent every Sunday going to Jewish, you know, day school. Um, weekend schools, what they have learned is, you know, Zionism in Israel has replaced Iran. So while you're shocked that they don't know the Iranian national anthem, I don't know the Iranian national anthem. They know every word of Hatikva. They could tell you every war, you know, war Israel fought. They could tell you what the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem smell like, where you could tell us where the streets of Tehran or Mashhad smell like. And I said, it's a whole new identity. And they didn't understand it at first. And I said, you know, yes, we support, I mean, I don't know their politics, but they probably have no idea even what's really going on in Iran outside of what I'm teaching them with the Green Revolution, because what difference does it make? Does it mean that all of a sudden it's going to be a free society and we as Jews could go back there and not feel anti-Semitism from the government, maybe not from the people, but from the government? It doesn't make a difference. So for you, it makes a difference because you go there every week, every, excuse me, every Every year, you talk to your family every week. We have zero connection to that country. So Israel and Zionism has really become the new, you know, it's not even new. That's their spiritual home. It's not Iran. It's amazing when you think about identity, you know, national identity right. or ethnic identity. Um, I'm wondering, as you think about some of the challenges that confront us today and maybe opportunities, knowing the Los Angeles community so well, what are some of the, well, first, let me just ask about some of the challenges. What are some of the things that um, you continue to see as, whether it's in the realm of education, whether it's in terms of communal harmony, like how, how our communities mix with one mm -hmm. another, uh, all the diversity that makes up that Los Angeles Jewish community, um, existential concerns, whether it's um, intermarriage or assimilation. What, what are some of those, those challenges that, that you would articulate? Within our community, I, you know, there's a beauty to the, the Iranian Jewish be community being so insular, but at the same time, you know, it's 40 plus years. It's okay if your daughter marries an Ashkenazi. Um, it's okay if your daughter marries who's a, someone who's a convert. It, I mean, you should just be happy that they find someone, you know, in a time that is... And is that starting to change where more and more families I don't see it with my students. I, I, you know, again, I, I, I'm not going out and interviewing 120 women like I used to, but I do have, I'm blessed to have 50 students, or I should say 50, 100 students a year come through my door. And it's still very traditional in that context. It's still, you know, I think the quote unquote intermarriage between a Sephardi Mizrahi and an Ashkenazi is becoming more accepted because I think Persian Jewish parents are just, should just be happy if their kids are marrying someone who's Jewish. And you can't expect them if they're going to Jewish day schools or going to secular schools that they're not going to want to date that boy or that girl who, you know, isn't Persian. But for the most part, my students still only date within the Persian Jewish community. Um, so that insularity is an advantage, but 
but there's also it's a, it's a, and I think and I think you know and you know this better than I do it's it causes a lot of disharmony in the the school life in the synagogue life and we need to be a cohesive Jewish community because there is so much anti-semitism from the left from the far left and the far right taking place right now and you know my biggest concern right now under the political situation that we're in and the rise of anti-semitism it's not that much the Persian, the Ashkenazi. It's really more the anti-Israel, the anti-Semitism, the criticism of Israel that comes in the most anti-Semitic tropes. That's my big concern, and that's where I'm concerned for my students and for the younger generation who are going to go to college because you, you might be, you know, you might be protected in your Jewish day school or in your day in just your secular school in Los Angeles where it has a large Jewish majority. You go away to college. It is a whole different thing, and that's where learning how to protect and defend yourself—not protect physically, but you know, really defend Judaism and protect Israel and defend Israel and defend it in a really, you know, academic. You know what you're talking about, and when they're throwing things out at you, you're not. I mean, look, I was that college student at Berkeley who just would cry because I didn't know how to protect or defend Israel. I just knew that what they were saying was hurting and it was anti-Semitic and I didn't know how to refute it. And, you know, I work now at the American Jewish Committee and I'm the assistant director of interreligious and intercommunity affairs. And we have this great program called Leaders for Tomorrow, LIFT, where we take high school students and it's a free program. They have to apply and one Sunday a month they come with us and we teach them about Israel advocacy and anti-Semitism that takes place all around the world and how when they go to college, not to sit there and fight back or yell back, write an article, make friends with different groups so they understand, you know, you're a refugee, I'm a refugee, my family got kicked out of Iran for being Jewish. And also to learn it's not just about the Jews, we deal with a lot, but you need to have advocates and allies. So go to the different communities and, you know, ask the Latino community, what is your fear? Immigration. We we were immigrants. How can we, as Hillel, work with you for that? And well, I love I love that uh, that approach on so many levels. And I think especially when you think about college campuses and conversations about white privilege, um, to know that there are Persian Jews who, as you said earlier, like we're brown, um, also Asian, um, you know, also Jewish. So wow, we could we could have a different kind of conversation than you might have. I, you know, as a side note, the whole conversation about are, are Jews white at all? Um, even though obviously a lot of Jews can pass as white, are we really white? Um, I think that's that's an interesting conversation. But certainly, when you think about that experience of you know Jews who come from places like Iran or Iraq or Yemen, um, to be able to say I'm a Jew of color. And when we have these campus conversations, I'm going to reject intersectionality, and I'm going to be the the counter point of that. I just think that's really fascinating. I'm glad that you're and working so on important. that. It's so important. It's so important. You know, and I have to say, Jewish day schools have not done a good job with that because it is what we call very Ashkenormative. So they they aren't teaching about the Sephardi and Mizrahi experience. They aren't teaching about the 750, 850,000 Jews that got kicked out of the Arab world. They're not teaching about also Ashkenazi racism that took place towards 
Jews of, you know, Sephardi, Mizrahi, when they came to Israel. And there's a lot of that. And they get it when they come into my classes. You know, you could say, well, we're just trying to teach them about Israel and give them a love of Israel. And then when they go into college, they could get that critical thinking. But it is really important because I think especially when you have this ridiculous paradigm of white versus brown and black, and if you, you have to fall into a certain category, and if you're brown and black, you are, you know, you're right, and the white person is a colonizer in an apartheid state, etc. Yeah, you're right. You have to be anti-Israel because you're brown. But I just want to um, reference something you just said about, you know, in Israel, the Sephardic, Mizrahi, Ashkenazi divide Certainly, the story of the Los Angeles Jewish community includes that. Yes. And I know when I first started working here at Stephen Wise, I somebody uh, referred to the the white community, and I was taken aback. I had no idea what they were talking about, and the, and it was actually a Persian Jew who said it. She was like, "Well, the whites," and I was like, "Who? I'm sorry, I just." don't understand what you're talking about. And she explained, oh, I'm talking about the Ashkenazi. Right. They're the whites. Right. And I was like, so wait, you're the, you're the, well, we're, you know, we're the Persians. So that surprised me because I was like, I've never in my entire life of Jewish community experienced that. And then the, the Ashkenazi racist um, impulse amongst, thankfully, not a majority in my experience, but amongst some in the LA community I was taken aback by that. I just, I didn't even know what to do with it at first. I right. was like, what? Right. Um, and then on the, on the other side, some of the maybe insularity um, or that might express itself just like as Persian pride, but could also be He's felt by some as like, well, well, you think you're better than we are. And I was just thinking about, you know, all of, first of all, this didn't surprise me in, in a uh, conceptual sense. Cause I know that Jews have always found ways to not get along with one another. Right. And we've always found ways to lord it over one another. And there are famous Israeli films about that. You know, when when uh, Shalom Sabati, when the right. next generation comes in of immigrants, then the previous generation of Olim, you know, looked down on them. So, so none of that really surprised me. But I did feel this was, you know, 2012, 2013. I just sort of felt like, oh my goodness, still? Yeah. Um, so I mean, do you see, see I, that changing? I, you know, you know better than I do. I, I teach a book in my um, Middle Eastern Jewish Women's Literature course. It's called We Look Like the Enemy by Rachel Shabby. And it looks at the racism the Arab Jews dealt with when they first came to Israel. And it's a great book. And it's, I mean, it's very academic. It doesn't read like a novel. It's, it's, you know, it's almost, it's a history book and it's divided into chapters where, you know, the music, the language, the communities, et cetera. And, you know, my Persian students read this and they say, wow, we still experience this in LA at our Jewish day schools. This is what, this was what it was like growing up in our Jewish day schools and high schools. And so, yes, from their experience, I think, yes, they still do experience that. And it's, it's unfortunate. But then again, it's not completely surprising. Every community does it. It's, it's not as if, you know, you put Italian Catholics and Irish Catholics on the Lower East Side at the turn of the century and they all got along because they were Catholic. Everyone, you know, there's a cultural aspect to it. It's just, it's sad that in this, you know, we are the second largest Jewish community in America, but it is still a small community. We're a minority. And so it's in this microcosm of LA life that you do have this divide. But then again, my Persian Jewish students have these divides between like the Valley Persian Jews and the, you know, the Beverly Hills Persian Jews. So, and I'm sitting here being like, and you expect that there's not going to be a divide with the Ashkenazis. And well, one thing that we're working on very hard here as a community is 
the the value of inclusivity right. and how do we inculcate that kulaliut and in fact this year in in our day school the theme our educational theme is kulanu keechad and one of the things I love about that phrase it's taken from the sim shalom mm-hmm. prayer and it says it, there's a line in that prayer where we say bless us our parent kulanu keechad all of us as one but when you think about that that word ke Echad, that, that letter ke, it means it comes from a word ki'ilu, as if. So kulanu ke'echad could be understood as it's it's as if we're one. And right. so there's a certain kind of mental gymnastics right. that you have to right. that you have to play. And and the way I see that is all of our rich diversity, all of the different things that, that actually could divide us, because we have these different experiences and different um, ways of looking at our religion, our cultural tradition, our cuisine, music, you name it, all of those things could make us feel like we're separate. Or we could say, ah, it's like we're all one and look how rich this is. So what I like to um, ask people, and and it's usually one of my last questions is, what are are some of the things that either uh, keep you up at night or get you up in the morning? These are, to me, the things that give our lives purpose and meaning, the things that uh, we wake up worried about are usually the things that we're most concerned about in our lives. And, and that's part of what gives our lives meaning, even if it gives us a little indigestion right. and heartburn as well. And the things that get us up in the morning excited about the work that we do, those are the things that give us meaning and purpose. So what are some of those things that, that either keep you up at night or get you up in the morning? Well, it's, I think it's the same thing that gets me excited and the same thing that gets gives me anxiety. Again, I'm very lucky that I work at a Jewish human rights organization that is my day job is um, fighting anti-Semitism. My day job is to protect, you know, to fight against anti-Israel bias and to make sure that Israel stays a vibrant Jewish democracy within a two-state solution. My day job is um, working with different religious communities and making sure that they have human rights and that I will advocate on behalf of you as a Jew because you deserve it as much as anyone else does. So what keeps me up at night, what literally makes me at four o'clock in the morning, which is a horrible time, and I don't know why I still wake up at that time, turn to my phone and my Facebook page is basically now just all news and journal, you know, journalist is what's going on in Israel, what's going on in Israel, what's going on in America. Um, is some is a is a school or a religious establishment getting shot up? Is you know is there a war? Who's attacking who? You know, it's when you work in the human rights world, you can't turn it off. And my job is to know every single thing that's taking place in the Middle East, because I also teach Middle Eastern history and religious studies, and also just as a global citizen and as an American citizen, also to make sure, you know, I want to know what's going on in our world, in our environment, et cetera. And so that's what gives me anxiety. Definitely that's what gives me anxiety. And, you know, for some people, it's like you you go and you do your day job, and then you're like, oh, what you know? What is Israel dealing with? For me, my I can't turn it off. That's it's, your day job. That's right? my day job. What, what which gives you me. hope in all of that? Because... What gives me hope in all that is that I, I work with amazing people, um, not just at AJC, not only our lay leaders and our staff, and we have twenty two offices in America and ten abroad, and also all these amazing Jewish organizations on top of that. But what gives me hope is when I speak to people like you and see people who are actively engaged. What doesn't give me hope is when people say oh my God, the news is so depressing, I can't even listen to it. And I go, well, you can't you can't shut it off because you have to be, again, you have to be an active citizen. Like, lucky you that your brain allows you to not worry about this. But everyone needs to worry about it. And whether it is 
your child who is, you know, oh, well, I don't want to get into politics, but um, I'll just keep this nonpartisan. But everyone, as a Jew, everyone needs to worry. And you need to not only protect your own community, but everyone's community. And so what gives me hope is that I do work with amazing people every single day and amazing organizations that are our community partners who are all there to try to you know, have the same thing taking place. And that is, I mean, I'm not, I'm not being silly about world peace, but a place where human rights is important. Saba, thank you so thank much you for so your much time. For having me. Of course. And I really look forward to our course. It's going to start in uh, December. Uh, so if you come to the wise website, um, you'll can learn more about what we're going to be talking about, but it's a three session course. We're going to be looking back 40 years of the Iranian Jewish experience, particularly in Los Angeles. And we want people to come and join us and and learn more. Please come. I look forward to meeting everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for tuning in. That was Saba Sumach. Please join Saba and me for our course. Begins in December of 2019. It'll go through February, three sessions. You can find more information about it at wisela.org. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. I want to thank all those who make the podcast possible. Jeremy Goldstein, our producer. Raz Husseini, our editor. Theme music was composed by David Cates and myself and features Josh Goldberg. Take care. <laughs>